Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, we welcome Greg Lucas. Greg is the California State Librarian based right here in Sacramento, across the street from the state capitol. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that Greg Lucas has... The absolute coolest job in California. Uh, I met with him earlier this summer at his office, uh, the State Library, where we chatted in a conference room, kind of neighboring, uh, adjacent to his office. And that conference room was probably bigger than my entire house. <laughs> it was uh, quite something. Um, he'll tell you a little bit about it in the start of our conversation, but uh, it was outfitted and adorned with photos and artwork and books and other artifacts from the library's collection. Just really, really cool. And um, like I mentioned, that was just steps away from his actual office, um, which itself is a pretty stunning reflection of his adventurous and accomplished life rooted very, very deeply in California. And that was uh, just upstairs from the chambers of the California Supreme Court on which Greg's father, Malcolm Lucas, served as the Chief Justice from 1987 to 1996. Greg's going to tell you all about that in our conversation, but I do recommend arranging a visit to the State Library, however and whenever you can. There is an amazing reading room there that has seen some nifty new renovations. There are tours and um, events and exhibitions and even... Uh, kind of off-site at the Sutro Library outpost in San Francisco, there's a Shakespeare first folio, like an original real deal first folio. Greg's going to tell you all about that too, which blew my mind. It was just like one surprise after another during our chat. Just, you know, another reminder how much greatness and wonder hides in plain sight all over California. You can check out the show notes for this episode to learn more about everything we cover And um, it is a lot. So do check out the show notes. All the links are right there. More reading, more discovery, as well as a link to the California State Library's homepage and its offerings and how to visit. I just want to issue a quick correction in advance. Uh, Greg references a State Highway 106 over the Sonora Pass during our conversation. And that route is definitely there and it does sound amazing, but for the record, it is State Highway 108 that runs through there. So if you're planning a drive up that way, which again, I highly, highly recommend, you'll just want to factor in Highway 108. Just want to clarify that. If you do have any feedback about what is California, any questions or thoughts, or just want to say hi, I would love that. You can do it by emailing me, hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can also subscribe to What is California wherever you get podcasts or via our free newsletter at Substack. That's on the internet. You may have heard of it. Check it out. Whatiscalifornia.substack.com. All right. Let's get to it. Here's me with California State Librarian Greg Lucas on What is California. Enjoy. Greg Lucas, welcome to What is California. How are you doing today? It's my pleasure to be here. I'm great. Where, where are we right now? Well, we're sitting in a conference room that's connected to the state librarian's office at the California State Library. 
Uh, it's a beautiful wood-paneled room. The building we're in was uh, completed in 1928, started in 1917. What makes this conference room unique is that on its walls are an exhibit which features black and white photos from Jim Marshall, who was a photographer from the 1960s, and his estate gave the photos to Shepard Ferry, the, the artist. And, and Shepard Ferry created these incredible kind of, they're, they're sepia-tinged, or they look that way to me anyway. I'm, I'm a little bit colorblind. But he took the very literal photographs and turned them into conversation pieces. So, for example, there's a photo of Johnny Cash over my left shoulder standing in front of the walls of old Folsom Prison, right? Right before his concert. Right. And on the first floor, as you come into the library, there's another exhibit of the ac a, a series of photos of Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, uh, of which this one is a part. But next to it is Shepard Ferry's version, which turns it into a conversation piece about incarceration and prison reform and what happens when you're released and that kind of thing. So what is your California story, Greg? Are you from here? I'm a native Californian. I was born in Long Beach, um, grew up closer to Seal Beach than Long Beach. My father was born, it was a native Californian. His mother was Georgina McGregor Campbell, so not born in California. <laughs> no. Overall, how long have you been in Sacramento? Uh, since 1983. My wife got a job as a press secretary or a press aide, actually, for George Dugmasian. And uh, she's my girlfriend then. And uh, I wanted to be in the same city with her. What's your story career-wise? How did you wind up uh, where we are today? Well, most of my professional career I spent as a reporter. 20 years with the San Francisco, almost 20 years with the San Francisco Chronicle covering the state capitol. I was the bureau chief for a little while. Um, prior to that, I worked for a legal newspaper here in town and then uh, left the Chronicle when they started downsizing. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan, and so I used to go to the shareholder meetings. Uh -huh. And so the Chronicle at Hearst, the Hearst Corporation, had bought the Chronicle. It used to be privately owned. And... Uh, so they said, hey, we got to get rid of 48 people, and if you leave now, right, we'll give you a nice check. And so I went to the shareholders meeting in Omaha, and somebody in the audience asked Warren Buffett, like, hey, what's up with the newspaper industry? And he said, well, newspapers were only fundamental to advertisers when they were fundamental to re readers. Mm -hmm. And I came back to California and said, I'm in. Check for me, please. Mm -hmm. So in what ways has this area of California... Sacramento, Sacramento region changed since you've been here? What have been the most noticeable changes for you and how do you feel about them? Uh, well, there's more, there's more growth, I, I guess. Um, some, of, some of the growth has been really positive, like seeing what's happened to, so Midtown in Sacramento, which is now a very bustling kind of vibrant part of town. I mean, used to be like warehouses and kind of like a sketch sort of place to hang out. And seeing more vitality downtown uh, than when I first moved here, right, the streets downtown would roll up at 5 o'clock. Sure. Right? All the bureaucrats would go home and right. it was just dead. Right. And so now I'll leave the office at 7.30 or something and walk to my car and there's people jogging around Capitol Park. There's a whole kind of life that's happening in downtown Sacramento that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. That being said, I mean, there's a lot more, you know, homes dotting the horizon and, you know, places where there used to be trees and now there's a subdivision. Yeah, but yeah. But that's not 
unique to California or Northern California. What's your earliest memory of California and why do you think that memory has stuck with you? Oh, I think, well, my earliest memory, my two earliest memories are the moving trucks moving us from the first house that I lived in to the next house. So I was three years old then. So that's like, why do I remember that? Because it's like totally traumatic. They're putting all this stuff into a truck and we're moving. And <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things <laughs> going on. That would explain on. it, yeah. And then the, the second, I would have been three, a little over three, was bringing my sister home from the hospital. And, you know, this little ball with like black hair on it. And it's in the back seat with me. No child seats, no seat belts, <laughs> right? Do you have another enduring or most significant memory of California from your adulthood? You know, I mean, the two, the two high point days of my life are the, the day Don and I got married, right? May 2nd, 1987. And, and when our daughter Katie was born on St. Patrick's Day of 1992. We lived in East Sacramento. And so we walked to the hospital from our house. Right, of course. And Sutter Memorial, right? Yeah. yeah. And so... You know, after Katie was born and, and Donna was resting, like I walked back to the house and put on uh, Shiny Happy People by R.E.M. Like I'm not a big <laughs> R.E.M. fan, but I'm fond of that song. And I, I must have danced around the house like for 10 minutes to the song, which, which was work, right? Because in those days, you'd have to pick up the needle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, play it again, play it again, play it again. You had Out of Time on vinyl? Uh, yeah. Amazing. Who are some Californians who have influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? Well, well, there's a lot. Um, I mean, my father was the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, and I've, I catch myself now, like I'll be on a Zoom call, and I'll, I'll be like, like doing one of his moves, you know? Like what? Well, so, so you have to be cautious, right, when you're a judge, not to you have to have a pretty righteous poker face, right? And not telegraph stuff. And, and one of Dad's moves was to sort of put, I don't want to muffle my voice, but... For we, the listener, uh, Greg is putting his yeah, put right his, hand put over his, his mouth. Yeah, he put his, his hand over it. And then, and then that way, like if somebody said something lame or something that struck him <laughs> as funny, like his mouth could go up, but you wouldn't see it, right? Right, and right, right. You'd, you'd keep the... Keep the eyes kind of like steely, um, and and him and and working for George Duke Mason. Sure, I, I learned a lot from him uh, because he was who he was. Right, he didn't try and pretend to be something else. And his politics and my politics are very different. But w with him, I, I always had faith that when push came to shove and he had a difficult decision, he'd fall back on a value system. Mm. It wouldn't be like, oh, well, the focus group said this. Right, right yeah. And I, I think you, you can see that in a couple of the things he did, like divesting out of South Africa, right? Sure. Um, which, you know, to, to him on its face is like, well, we have a fiduciary responsibility to the retirees. Why are we making political decisions when we should be making, you know, financially sound decisions? And you know, what appealed to him was the Speaker Willie Brown saying, look, for you and your people, right, this is like the Turkish genocide of Armenians. Oh, right? wow, wow. For okay. me, right, that's what apartheid is. Yeah. And that's what reached him. Wow. And, and here's Willie Brown, right, like <laughs> San Francisco. Yeah, they probably didn't see eye to eye on a lot of no, things. But interestingly, Dugmasian's seatmate in the Senate was George Moscone. Okay. And when Moscone was shot... Um, like George couldn't pull off the 
like the speech honoring him, like he just like he couldn't. He broke down and and cried. And again, they were so close, but they couldn't be more different. Like Dugmajian went home at night and read like crime bills, and Moscone was out, you know, ex- enjoying the nightlife of of Sacramento, right? Right, sure. But um, and then the other thing that happened my freshman year was. June 4th or 5th, it's like the second or the last day of school, somebody says, hey, I got an extra ticket to go see the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. So so I was at Stanford, so it's a drive up to San Francisco, and we go to Winterland. Never experienced that before. And we go to the show, and it's the encore, and the encore is Uncle John's Band. At the end of Uncle John's Band, it's it's a kind of a straight-up bluegrass song, right? It's all these major keys, uh, major key chords in major keys, right? So it's G, C, D, G, right? Back okay. and forth. And so at the end, they do this kind of dead space thing where they switch the D to a D minor, and all of a sudden it becomes very dark. And, oh, sure. And so like they go into this thing at the end of Uncle John's Band, and there's red lights on this crowd, and I'm looking around, and it's like, man, this is like Dante's Inferno. This is just <laughs> incredible. I want more. And so, so uh, I became a Grateful Dead fan. Amazing. And I, I, I think, just kind of based on the energy I put into it, I probably majored in Grateful Dead concerts. That <laughs> uh, was a lot of lab work. How many? Um, oh, it's over the years. It's, probably, it's about, a, about 100, probably. Amazing. Not counting the, you know, the new iterations of the surviving band members. But I, I was thinking about this the other day. From them, I was turned on to bluegrass music, which is a passion, right? right. I was turned on to jazz. And I was turned on to sort of the value of serendipity right so you can have a group of people who are doing their own thing and the synergy of that can be really something could fall flat on its face too as they often did right in concerts but that kind of that magic moment is worth the investment or worth the effort in trying to create that kind of an environment Sure, sure. Well, let's pivot to places. I mean, how has California's geography impacted you and who you are? Is there any terrain or buildings or locations or places, maybe a favorite place that has kind of sunk in with you over the years? Going, I think, I'm pretty sure it's Highway 106 that goes over the Sonora Pass. It's like the northernmost way you can get into Yosemite. So that's one of the most beautiful drives in California, just Mm. taking that up and over the Sonora Pass, and you come down past, there's a military base there, which is, and then you go to Bridgeport, and you're on that side of the Eastern Sierras. Right. Where, like, Bishop's Pass, if you've ever gone over Bishop's Pass. Okay. I mean, Sierraville, that whole valley above Tahoe is the largest alpine meadow in North America. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever driven there, it's like there's, hawks that will sit on the fence post there like waiting like looking for you know easy pickings sure driving up driving up to modoc county through the modoc national forest i had a story there i've forgotten what the group was it was something like the rainbow coalition of light had their (laughs) convention is too strong a word but they had a gathering in the modoc national forest okay and just seeing these parts of the state like high desert i mean like high desert like this dry sort of um, ecosystem that's mm-hmm. at 5,000 or 6,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Right. And Southern California, we we rented a cabin in Idlewild in Riverside County when I was growing up. Got a lot of fond memories of that place. Um, I mean, I've traveled all over, and I, I can't get enough of it. And the more I see of California, the more 
I realize how special we are. Like I've been to, you know, European countries, I've been to countries in South America, I've been to Malaysia, I've been, you know, I'm fairly well traveled. And I've yet to find a country that has everything that California has, right? There's some that have things that California has it, that are more intense there than in California. But we just we don't know uh, or we forget sometimes how extraordinary of a state and a place this is. So what is your title officially and what do you do in that role? Well, depending, you know, <laughs> depending on the person, so I'm either the state librarian of California or the California state librarian. <laughs> and so some, some people think that the state librarian of California is the, it may well be the official title. Okay. And that sounds kind of pretentious to me sometimes, so I just kind of say state librarian. Yeah, I'm looking at your business card right now and it says state librarian, so right. that's what you settled on. All right, so what do you do as a state librarian? Uh, well, every day is different, which is one of the things that makes it my dream job. But, I mean, generally speaking, there's kind of state library-related functions and there's outward things that we do. So the state library, one of the first acts of the state legislature in 1850 after California became a state was to create the state library. And one of the reasons the state capital is in Sacramento is because Sacramento promised the state of California, uh, we'll give you a vault to put your papers and your books in. Really? Well, they, they'd been in three or four different places, one of them being um, Vallejo, which wasn't completely built. So like the legislators like are walking on these wood planks over muddy streets and staying in right. riverboats because yeah. the, the facilities weren't adequate for their needs. But anyway, the state library has grown over the years. And so we're, we're not the Library of Congress, but we're, we're sort of California's version of that. I, I like to think of it as we're, we're here to tell you stories about who and what California is and what it's becoming. And there's a function of that, which means whatever's in our care, we have to take care of it to the best of our ability so that it's around for other people to enjoy for a long, long time into the future. Mm -hmm. The other part of what we do is we get grant money from the state and from the federal government uh, for things like literacy and support of local libraries, primarily local public libraries. There's 1,130 of them in California. That's the most of any state, which says something about California. Mm -hmm. So how does one become the state librarian? I mean, do you actually have to be a librarian to become the state librarian? Uh, the, the law says the state librarian has to have some training as a librarian. It doesn't say you need a master's degree in library and information sciences, which is what librarians have. It's uh, the job's a gubernatorial appointment, and you serve at the pleasure of the governor. There's no fixed term. So who appointed you? Uh, Jerry Brown. When? May of 2014. And why did he appoint you? How did you uh, work that out? Well, I'm not entirely sure why. I, I, mean, I mean, briefly, I'd been at the Chronicle. I'd left the Chronicle. I had started a blog, and part of what I was trying to do with the blog to distinguish me from just sort of the general news coverage was to put current events in a perspective. So, hey, it's a terrible drought. And so I would write something like, well, it sure is, but how about the drought of 1866? And, and so right, right, I think right. that may have gotten people thinking that somehow I was interested in California's history. So I was at a friend's birthday party 
former legislator, friend of mine, came up and said, uh, you know, the state doesn't have a full-time state librarian. There's, a, you know, an acting state librarian there, and the place is kind of adrift. Do you know anyone who, who would be good? I think because of this blog I had where I was talking about California history, and I think a lot of people equate this office, this institution, more with history than some of the other things that we do. And so, so I said something close to, I don't know why the hell you're asking me this, like why would I possibly like, you know, <laughs> care who was the state librarian? And by the end of the party, I thought it would be terrific to apply. <laughs> so I apply. And I get a call back from a woman who I knew from working in the legislature, right? She'd been in the Senate for a long time and had gone to work in Governor Brown's appointments unit. And she said, Greg, I have your application here for state librarian. Do you mean it or were you loaded? <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you know, I think I mean it. And she said, great, I think you would be terrific. And so there was like all these interviews with kind of appointments people and stuff. And then nothing happened. And a year went by. And I forget where I was exactly, but the phone went off. And it's like, come to the governor's office. I was like, why? Uh, you know, for a job interview. And I said, for what? And they said, state librarian. And it's like, <laughs> okay. So I go over to the governor's office. And, and they stick me in this room with Brown, Governor Brown. Have you ever talked to him? Oh, he was the first guest on the show. Okay. So he's so smart, and, and there's so much stuff that he thinks about that it, it's like he's pinging from one thing to another, right? I left after 45 minutes. There was sweat on the back of my neck trying <laughs> to stay with him. And so his chief of staff, Nancy McFadden, was in the room. His appointment secretary, uh, Mona Pascal, was there. And most of the interview, they're there with like, oh, is he going to flame out, right? You know, is he going to be able to keep up? And, and, and Brown was so he's so terrific to talk to. And just in the sense of you never know like, yeah, what adventure totally. you're going to go on next with him. Totally. And at the end, he shakes my hand and says, uh, well, I think it's commendable that you use the archives. Because we'd spent most of the interview talking about the state archives. Because mm -hmm. he supervised that when he was the Secretary of State. We oh, didn't wow. really talk okay. about the state library. Okay. And uh, he said, yeah, we'll get back to you. So I walk back to my office, and there's a draft press release, like, announcing my appointment. I said, hey, could I call, like, my folks first? And so what had happened is in that year, Nancy McFadden had decided that I was right for this job. And she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Really? And... I, I, owe, I owe her so much. She's, she died of ovarian cancer. Right. But, um, like somehow she knew like this would be my dream job and that what, what, whatever I was bringing to the table was something that would be really positive. And I, I didn't see that. So what is the tradition of the California State Librarian? And how did you kind of recognize that when you applied? And how did you want to imprint your own vision and your own kind of ideas on the role? I don't know. I mean, I spent the first two years being too stupid to know how stupid I was. I had committed, the, the good thing was I committed to Jerry Brown that I would go and get a master's degree in library and information sciences. I, I said something very close to him like, look, if anybody even knows that there's a state librarian, which is a small select club. <laughs> don't uh, sell yourself short, Greg. Well, 
I can't tell you how many times I had no idea there was a state. <laughs> it's like, yeah, me either. Well, we're uh, going to get the word out for you. But anyway, so I, I promised him that I would go and get this degree. Right. And he, he could have cared less. Right. I mean, okay. But, but I'd committed to do it. And interestingly, the initial publicity was, I'm, I'm pleased to say what I predicted to him was, which is like in a state with 16,000 rocking librarians, you, you pick some broken down old newspaper man to be the state <laughs> librarian. And like I say, Brown could have cared less, but go, going to library school, I had to do it online through San Jose State, which was a terrific experience. And so all the challenges that I was facing here, those became my homework assignments in these classes. And I got to benefit from like input from people that had been doing this kind of work longer than me. Yeah. People from other states, uh, different perspectives. And that was really helpful. Well, what did they think when the state librarian showed up to get his master's in library science while everyone else was uh, still just trying to kind of break into the industry? I didn't tell them who I was. And so they didn't really know. I mean, the head of the school knew, but the professors really didn't really and I had it well well it's, I, I got over that that didn't work quite as well as I'd hoped but I had one experience with uh, and she stayed a friend uh, to this day she used to be the head of the uh, oh oh it's in the Bay Area I can see it um, it's one of the interest Saratoga library system and they're one of the interesting ones in that the head of the library is also the head of the social services agencies and people would always say to her, it's like, oh, what a, how awful for you, right? And she said, oh, no, this is awesome, right? Because I can connect the two, and when it's budget time, right, like, then, then I keep them even more connected. But anyway, so uh, she calls one day and says, I, I just realized that, that you're the state librarian. I said, yeah. Amazing. And she said, I, I want you to know, I, I want you to, uh, I, or I just want to make sure that, you know, your success in this class isn't going to affect like our grant applications before the state library. And so I said, well, don't kid yourself. I mean, there's a very direct correlation between how well I do in your class and, and how we regard your grant applications. And there's like dead silence on the phone. I said, Lisa, at least I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and so we became friends after that. We're, we're a small state agency, but when, when I started, we were at about 120 people and we're at about 175 now. So there's still a lot of competing sort of priorities, right, with what we do. And, and those kind of courses were really helpful in figuring out, okay, well, what's the most important thing to do right now? Right. Now, you've talked about the databases. You've talked about the vault and the archives that you offer here. Um, what are some of the services, either online, in person, that the State Library offers that people might be surprised to know about, either collections or services of, of any kind? Somebody, my father's dead now, but someone of his generation would describe this place as Fibber McGee and Molly's Closet, which was a radio show where at some point during the radio show, they would open the door to this closet. And it's that sound effect that they've used for 50 years to have stuff clattering and falling coming out of a closet. And it's just we, the donations over the years, the things that we've collected. I mean, we have a fantastic, comprehensive stacks filled with government publications of all kinds. But we also have 800,000 photographs and negatives by a guy named Tom Vano, whose office was in the Clift Hotel in San Francisco. 
So besides chronicling the construction of the Bank of America building on California Street in San Francisco and the construction of the Oroville Dam in 1964, mm-hmm. this guy has all these kind of leisure photos of Alfred Hitchcock and the cast of Vertigo because they stayed at the Clift Hotel. Sure, right. And then, to top it off, his buddy from high school on is Tony Bennett. Wow. So there's photos. And it's like he did every Tony Bennett album until, for a long, long time until Vano retired. And there's photos in there of Tony Bennett that you're not going to see anywhere else. Do you have a favorite piece in the collection? What I there have been different favorites over the years. It's, it's so things get moved around. So I I used to I used to go to a place where they had the rare books that weren't in the vault. And uh, there was a book on, of all things, Bengali folktales, so northern India, right? And it's from 1911, and the illustrations were each like watercolors, like, like each like illustration of these folktales. And the folktales were kind of trippy, mm-hmm. but um, the artwork in it was just extraordinary. And I, I loved it because it's just laying on the shelf here. Mm-hmm. How did you discover it? Walking around on the stacks. I, I used to do that a lot more than I do now. That looks interesting. I'm just going to take off the shelf, and then all of a sudden yeah. you discover well, this it's, marvelous... It's in the stacks. There's nobody down there but me, right? So, yeah. um, I, mean, I mean, I'll go down to Sutro, right? So we have one branch, which is the Sutro Library in San Francisco. It's on the top of the Leonard Library at San Francisco State. Okay. And... Adolf Sutro, uh, he was an engineer. He was like, like what Hearst was for art, like Sutro was for books. So Hearst would send people to Europe to buy everything here, like all this art. And Sutro would do the same thing. He'd send people, like buy everything in this bookstore. And by the time he died, he had a collection of 300,000 books. He'd wanted to create a world-class research library in San Francisco. He had 300,000 books that were stored in warehouses. Two of the warehouses burned to the ground in the, after the fires from the, following the 1906 earthquake. There's a terrific story. Whether it's true or not, I don't really care. It's such a great story. That, so, like, he had several kids. Most of them thought he was a crackpot. Oh, the book thing, dad, you know. Mm-hmm. But he had a daughter that, that dug books, right? And so she goes into one of the burning warehouses and brings out the Shakespeare first folio that he'd bought and some of these other like sort of priceless, irreplaceable things. And, uh, so the remaining 90,000 books comprise the Sutro library. I mean, there is still the Shakespeare first folio. Like you, you and the other 39 million residents of California own a Shakespeare first folio. Amazing. Of which, like I say, there's 232 known copies in the world. So if we want to see the Shakespeare first folio or Bengali folktales or anything that is in the library's physical collection, how can a Californian actually do that? You come here and ask for it. You're the owner, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the extraordinary things about the state library. I guarantee you, if you go to the Folger Library on Capitol Hill, which has 89 or something like that Shakespeare first folios, and you say, hey, I'd like to look at a copy, like, they ain't going to let you look at a copy. Mm-hmm. But you're a Californian. These books belong to you. You come to the Sutro Library and ask to look at your copy of Shakespeare's first folio. We'll bring it out. We'll hover. And you ain't going to be able to check it out and take it home or nothing like that. <laughs> but like, we'll let you look at it because it, it belongs to you. It belongs to California. In town here across the street, 
there's a copy of Audubon's book, or Birds of America. And so that's 400 pages or so, I've forgotten, in this thing they call an elephant folio because it's so, the book is so large. But each page is a life-size representation of a species of bird, painted. Right, so again, it's like each page is like a piece of artwork. There's 151 of those in the world. A couple years ago, some university, I don't know, Princeton or somebody like that, was trying to rehab one that had been thrashed in a fire or like rain or something like that. They'd spent $6 million to try and bring it back to life. The last one of these things sold at auction for $15 million. So, I mean, that's here. That belongs to California. Oh, tell me about the largest collection of haiku outside of Japan, Greg. Well, it's, it's one of those things where when I became state librarian, somebody says, we have the largest collection of haiku outside of Japan. And it's like, why? <laughs> and Why not? Well, well, yeah, well that, see, that's, that, should have been, that should have been my answer. But, um, <laughs> but it's, it's one of these things where there was the haiku association. They had no place to store their stuff. And, yeah. and one of my predecessors, I think it was Dr. St Starr, right? Kevin Starr, the, who's whose books about California are just... Yeah, like, they're marvels. Yeah, right. They, like, they're page turners, right? Right, yeah. You know, which isn't exactly a phrase you often use in conjunction to like history. But I, and I think he said, fine, we'd be happy to help out. And I, we, we're keeping that attitude alive. I mean, our philosophy is we should facilitate you being able to give something to us if you want to. We should make that easy. Because if we make it difficult then often people just kind of throw out something that could be very valuable and is worth preserving. I mean, that's another one of the things we do. There's, something, there's several thousand like local archives, historical societies, museums all over the state that we did a survey a couple of years ago of I think 450 of them answered. But I mean, there's 240 million items in their protection and half of them don't have a written disaster preparedness plan. A large chunk of them are staffed by volunteers, mm -hmm. and the state has no coordinated strategy wow. to protect them. And we've just begun a program this year where we're sending people out, uh, like a team of these collection protection experts, to meet individually with these entities to try and help them create disaster preparedness plans and things like that. What are your uh, favorite books about California? Maybe a, one novel, one nonfiction piece. Well, I'm very fond of Mary Coyne by um, Marissa Silver. And her, her writing is just, it's so great. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so fluid and it, it just pisses me off to read the thing because I'm never going to be able to write that well. And it's a, it's a guy who goes home to Fresno after his father dies and begins digging into his family history. And the history involves a fictionalized life of the Dust Bowl mom in the photo by Dorothea Lang. Really? And so it's... That sounds great. It's, oh, it's, I give it as gifts. I, wow. And then I, I think still uh, for all of, like the statistics look kind of funky, like you just laugh at the statistics. But California, the great exception, um, uh, by Carrie McWilliams, Williams, sure. is still really fundamentally uh, the, the best assessment of what, I mean, the title says it all, right? I mean, we became a state almost instantly. The states around us were territories for a long time. We dominated the West because we had all the dough from the gold rush, right? Exactly, yeah. And uh, that, 
I mean, even even the datedness of it. I mean, it was written. I want to say in 1950. Um, just the assessment of where you know, our agricultural capability. And it's, it's still, it's, it's kind of the best sort of mapping out of, of what makes California such an extraordinary state and what, and, and, and as he says, exceptional state. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces and how would you say it might be surmounted? I think our greatest challenge is also our greatest treasure. I mean, California is the most diverse group of people that's ever been brought together in the history of human civilization as equals. So there's something like 220 different languages. UC says something like 220 different languages and dialects. 30% of Californians are born in another country. The United States, 13% are born in another country. 40% of California's population are Latinx, right? 20% of the U.S. population is. 13, 14% of our population are Asian American, 6% of the United States. And about the only thing we have in common with the rest of the United States is there's a bunch more like old people with shiny hair like me who are hanging around longer than they used to. (laughs) And uh, I love it. They call it the, what is it? It's the something tsunami, the Silver tsunami, is that what they call it? Uh, I love it. I, yeah, but it's like, I, I mean, I always visualize like people like me, like we're rolling up and inundating like... <laughs> I'm knee know. deep. Yeah, right. I'm and senior citizens. And, and elderly people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so that's our greatest strength. But the greatest challenge is in part remembering that and not allowing sort of the fluctuations and the, these fundamental economic changes that are going on mm-hmm. to, you know, have us forget that that's what really makes us so special. And I, you know, I don't think about it all that much, except when I go to like national things, like we had a, you know, it was a gathering of state librarians from all over the country and uh, got pretty loud playing the Dewey Decimal system drinking games, but, you know, there's always one of these stick in the mud. It's like, shh, stop it. Um, <laughs> sorry, library humor. Um, That's why we're here. But they had, you know, they had the census demographer, and, and they're talking about, they're giving us a sense of where the country is going. And, and we're there already, California. Like, we're past that. I mean, we're not the United States. I mean, the, the United States is moving ever so slowly towards where we are already. It sounds like you're talking about the kind of economic segmentation then, um, that is kind of, or the kind of compartments. We have a very diverse, uh, very rich society culturally, but the social separations are such that not everyone is included in California's riches and prospects. Is that, do I have that right? Yes and no, right? I mean, it isn't a California thing per se. It's more like what's, I mean, fundamentally, all all of these vexing social and political issues we're facing are rooted in a a dramatic change in the economy. A lot more money is being uh, transferred into the hands of a few rich people. Why is that? Gosh, that's terrible, right? Well, okay, that's that's a function of how our economy works now and technology uh, exacerbates that. Okay. You, you and I are bricklayers. You're the best bricklayer in California, but and I'm the second best bricklayer. Okay. So everyone's going to want to have you lay their bricks right for them. But 
you're not going to be able to do that. So there's still business for me, the kind of lame second tier, right, bricklayer guy. Okay? Now we're software creators. And I have this just most awesome software, and everyone's buying it and using it. But then you come out with one that's better. What, is there still work for me? No, I'm, I'm done. Like, nobody's buying my software anymore. They're buying yours. So all of a sudden, all the money and all the business goes, right, to one person who's manufacturing the better software. If anybody has a job that's cognitively or physically repetitive, it's being replaced by automation. And we're, we, society, we, we, California, we, the United States, are having a terrifically difficult time adjusting to that. Right. And it's like, it's, it's discombobulating, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I've been doing something for 50 years, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, that's not an industry anymore, Greg. Like, you, you're going to have to go out and reinvent yourself at 50 years of age. Well, I don't really want to do that. So... There's, all, there's a whole range of human behaviors that kick in at that point, right? So one is, well, it can't be my fault, it's somebody else's fault, right? Like, so we scapegoat these other factors that don't have you know, anything to do with what the situation is. So that's one of the things I believe makes libraries so special, is that they can help people reinvent themselves. I love that answer. I, right? I mean, you walk in there and you can get what you want. Yeah. Think about, I mean... How about if we lived in a world where there were no libraries and you dreamed up the idea of libraries and you went in to, to pitch the idea of li- public libraries to an elected official and asked them to spend right, millions, billions of dollars to create a network of 1,130 public libraries to help people. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll build these buildings, we'll fill them with information. Uh, they're open to anyone regardless of circumstance at any time. Oh, and if somebody finds something they like, we'll let them take it with them on an honor system. Like, they'd laugh you out of the goddamn room, right? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like, libraries, I mean, if you take a step back... I mean, libraries represent in many ways the very best of what we do as people, like sharing and helping and, right? And regardless of, of your circumstance or personal reward. So it's kind of like the great equalizer. It's like one of the few, if any, equalizers that California has is right. its library system. Yeah, they're also a great place to be alone together. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> as somebody told me the, the other day, and I thought, okay. It's kind of weird, but I get it, right? In your experience discussing California with people outside the state, what do you think or what do you find that people most misunderstand about California? Well, I think it's like anything, right? So in the absence of real information or personal knowledge, you substitute, I know I do this, if substitute my prejudices or, or whatever. So if you haven't come here, it's it's like... I find most people tend to buy into whatever the media representation is of California. And there's an old Grateful Dead lyric, right? I mean, you ain't going to learn what you don't want to know. I don't know that people want to dig in to see how successful we are as a result of integrating all these different voices and cultures and stories. I mean, (laughs) if, if you think of California as a tapestry we got the brightest, most colorful tapestry of any state in the union. There's a reason people come here, right? So people may understand, misunderstand what our success is, or they may think it's like, oh, the flaky West Coasters, and 
you know, we're all these kind of progressive, save the whale, ban the snail, whatever, you know, kind of people. And I think fundamentally what makes California so extraordinary is this mix of people and our willingness, right, to hear their their stories and their voices mm-hmm. and, and to let that, you know, propel us forward rather than finding ways to, you know, segregate or pick it apart or, or just not listen. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian past or present and why? One, one of my favorite past Californians is uh, Governor Pardee, who was subject to the prejudices of the time. He was the governor during the early part of the 20th century. There was a uh, backlash against Japanese immigrants, and he didn't exactly stand up for Japanese immigrants. But he's the only medical doctor who's been the governor of California. He was the first governor to live in that house, the governor's mansion that's over here on H Street in Sacramento. Kept his medical bag in the hallway, went out and made office calls in Alkali Flats. He had a big family. And he made them build a second door on the governor's mansion so that if somebody had to interrupt him for work, it wasn't like interrupting his family. And so in those days, the railroads decided who was the governor. And so he had the temerity to say, he was a he was Teddy Roosevelt Republican, so he was uh, conservation of natural resources, things like that. And he had the temerity to say that the railroads should pay more money in taxes or something like that. And so they decided, well, we don't want his action anymore. And they picked someone else to be governor. And he was justifiably pissed off. And he went back to Oakland. And he got together a group of 10 or 12 people. And they met at a place called the Roosevelt Hotel. I think it's called the Roosevelt Hotel. And they created the Progressive Party. And who are we going to run as a candidate for governor? Well, how about that hotshot DA from San Francisco, Hiram Johnson? And so, right, Hiram Johnson comes in a few years later, breaks the stranglehold of the railroads, creates mm-hmm. the initiative process, right. um, all these different things. I mean, he had his own issues about, again, he shared those same prejudices about Japanese immigrants and passed some really icky kind of laws about ownership of land in California. But... I mean, you know, party didn't get mad. He went and got even. And I think in terms of present Californians, my, my best friend uh, in the legislature over the years is John Burton, who used to be a assemblyman, state senator, head of the Senate from San Francisco. And John is our daughter's godfather. He's quirky. He's difficult. I mean, he's profane. He's all these different things. And, but he's got a big heart. And we knew that if anything happened to us, like John would take care of Katie. He would move heaven and earth to make sure Katie got everything that she wanted, just like he did with his daughter, Kimmy, right? And, you know, Katie'd learn a lot of bad words. But um, <laughs> what I most appreciate about him is that from the exact, from the opposite end of the political spectrum of George Duke Mason, that the value systems are fundamentally the same. Like one of John's favorite lines is, like, these people come up to me and go, gosh, you're a man of your word. It's like, what the fuck are you telling me I'm a man of my word? I'm supposed to be. That's not supposed <laughs> to be news, right? That's supposed to be kind of the fundamental underpinning. The of base the, level. Of, totally. Yes. Of the work that we do here. Right. And, and the other thing is, he, it's, a, it's a parrot, I think, of, 
I mean, they attribute it a lot to Harry Truman, but the basic line is there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't mind not getting credit for it. Right. And there's so many things that John did, and you'll never see his name on it. And in the end, he did get his name on the California Democratic Party headquarters right here in Sacramento. Well, not so. by not at his suggestion, but by them sort of. And I think my recollection is when you when you walk in, the threshold says something like what I just said to you, which is there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't mind not getting credit for it. And I, I will tell you. In all honesty, that's a super hard thing for my ego to get used to, but I've seen the truth of, of that over and over and over again. I mean, if it's, and so, I mean, a lot of our success at the library comes from other people making it happen. Greg Lucas, thank you so much for being on What is California? It's been that's, great talking to you. It's my pleasure. Wow, there you have it. Greg Lucas, California State Librarian. Best job in California. No joke. Thank you to Greg for letting me drop by and uh, pick his brain a little bit about this state. Thanks also to Alex Vassar for helping us arrange this conversation at the library and for the tour of the facilities when I got there. That was very cool, very enlightening, and I'm most grateful. Thank you to you as well, dear listener, for tuning in. This week and always, much obliged. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free episode of our podcast in your inbox every Tuesday, as well as weekend links, a cool roundup of nifty California stories in your inbox every Friday. Once again, that is totally free and you can sign up at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. If you'd like to drop me a line via email, I would love that. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. If you have thoughts, questions, recommendations, suggestions, hate mail, love notes, marriage proposals, whatever else I haven't even thought of yet, hello at whatiscalifornia.com. It would be great to hear from you. Please subscribe to What Is California wherever you get your podcasts. And, and if you liked the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That is going to do it for this episode of What is California? Thanks again for joining me. I will catch you next time. Until then, as always, keep your eye on the bear.